Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel by D.G. Rampton. Chapter 45 After searching the downstairs rooms, Hugh made his way to April's bedchamber and knocked firmly on the door. He was about to knock a second time when Rachel opened it. Is your mistress inside? he asked without preamble. No, sir, she replied with a troubled expression. She left. Left? The girl nodded vigorously. Yes, sir, she came in all in a flutter, put on her boots and cloak, and before I had time to do more than blink, she told me she was going to Christmas Mass in the village and left. She's walking to the village in this weather. Yes, sir, I did my best to dissuade her, but she... she seemed determined. I take it she was in a temper. Nothing else could explain such idiocy, he declared savagely. Not in a temper exactly, but so agitated I could barely coax a handful of words from her. In high dudgeon, then. Either way, she's a fool. Stoke up the fire. I'm going to bring her back before she catches her death of cold. Wasting no more time on words, he quickly made his way to the bedchamber he was sharing with his grandfather, and, bursting into the room, surprised the personage who looked after his grandfather's wardrobe, and who had temporarily condescended to look after his own, with a hasty order to prepare his riding clothes. "'You wish to go riding now, sir?' the valet asked with marked disbelief, as he glanced out the window at the deep snow on the ground. "'Yes, and at once,' replied Hugh, as he began to strip off his clothing." In less than 15 minutes, he was entering the stables and ordering the stable hands to saddle up a horse best suited to the current conditions. The boys exchanged looks of surprise, but rushed to do his bidding, and within a short space of time, Hugh was riding down the driveway, following the deeply imprinted trail April had left behind her. It took only a few minutes of trudging through snow that came to her knees, for April to realise she had acted in a singularly foolish fashion. Her temper often led her down paths she later came to regret, but in this instance, she ruthlessly told herself, she had outdone herself with her stupidity. Had she been dressed like a man, in breeches and top boots, she may well have enjoyed the walk. However, as her skirts made it difficult to traverse the snow, and her half-boots had become sodden almost immediately, she found it impossible to appreciate the frosted beauty around her. And neither did it help that her mind was in turmoil, flitting from one memory to the next, yet never fully landing on any to rest, for fear her pain would intensify. When she reached the road, she found the snow there was not as heavy on the ground, for the high banks on either side and the thick canopy of denuded trees formed a partial barrier against it. As she proceeded along this natural tunnel, an all-encompassing stillness surrounded her, only occasionally disturbed by the snapping of a twig in the underbrush or a falling clump of snow from the branches. She was halfway to the village when another sound reached her ears. A soft thumping of hooves behind her that seemed to be getting louder. She wondered who in the world had chosen to go riding today of all days and stepped to the side of the road to let the rider pass. The instant a tall, familiar figure rode around the bend, she let out an infuriated gasp and, turning swiftly about, continued on her way. 
Hugh slowed to a walk and followed her, making certain to keep far enough away so that his horse would not make her uncomfortable. Now that he could see she was safe, and in a temper if the tilt of her head was anything to go by, his anxiety faded away and an irrepressible chuckle rose to his lips. April whirled around. How dare you laugh at me? He reined in the horse, a rather large animal, a few feet away from her. I'm not laughing at you, he replied. Well, you are not laughing with me. No, I can see I am not. But I am laughing at the absurdity of the situation we find ourselves in. There is no we in this situation, Mr. Royce. There is me on my way to the village, minding my own business, and there is you minding your own. You are my business. Indignation swelled within her. Oh, is that how it is to be? It is not enough for you to have one woman. You must also have another waiting in the wings. How I pity Miss Starling. If she doesn't yet know it, she will soon discover you are the most appallingly behaved man alive. I hope to God she has discovered it. I've certainly been at great pains to point it out to her over the last few weeks. How charming. And the wedding band not yet even on her finger. Whatever wedding band she may agree to wear in future, I am happy to say it won't be mine. She advanced towards him, momentarily forgetting the horse. Do you mean to tell me, she said in appalled accents, that after kissing the poor girl in what I can only describe as an impassioned manner, you are now withdrawing your offer to marry her? Hugh's own temper flared at this unflattering reading of his character. I don't mean to tell you anything of the sort, but I can see you're only too ready to believe me lost to all sense of honour. What sort of loose screw do you think I am? His anger gave her pause, and an uncertain look entered her eyes. I don't think you're a loose screw. I would never have thought you capable of such conduct. I'm not. My only wish in subjecting Miss Starling to a kiss I knew she would find distasteful was to convince her to break off our engagement, an engagement I've been regretting for near enough two months. April's heart leapt with sudden joy, although she had a poor opinion of his tactics. It was inconceivable to her how any woman not yet in her dotage could be anything but thrilled to be kissed by him in such a manner. You thought to drive her away by kissing her. That is absurd. Not that it is any concern of mine, she hastened to add, retreating from her point before she could betray herself. Isn't it? he asked, a half-smile on his lips. Certainly not. I am of course very sorry to hear you are regretting your engagement, but what is to be done? Oh, for goodness sake, do come down off that colossal animal. I'll soon have a crick in my neck if I'm forced to continue looking up at you, she said irritably, not enjoying the feeling of vulnerability that had come over her. A warmth entered Hugh's eyes as he surveyed her upturned countenance. Of course, forgive me. He transferred the reins into one hand and was on the point of dismounting when a loud cracking noise startled the horse and it reared in fright. As Hugh struggled to get the animal back under control, a large branch that had snapped under a load of snow fell from above and landed with a sickening thud on his head, before crashing to the ground and narrowly missing April. 
Hugh lurched sideways off the saddle and landed face down in the snow in an inanimate heap. It all happened so quickly that for several moments all April could do was to stare down at him in horror. Hugh, she cried, falling on her knees beside him. With a growing sense of dread, she managed to push him onto his back and saw at once that he had an ugly gash in the hairline above his forehead that was bleeding profusely. Her stomach lurched uncomfortably, but as she had been raised in the country and had seen her fair share of injured animals, she did not experience the least desire to faint. Picking up a handful of snow, she compacted it between her fur mittens and pressed it against his wound. She held it there until it had melted and repeated the procedure. After several minutes, the bleeding had slowed until it merely oozed sluggishly. Satisfied that he was no longer in danger of blood loss, she took off her mittens and unwrapped the new bandage her maid had used to dress her hand that morning, then wound it as tightly as she dared around Hugh's head. When she was finished, she sat back on her heels and studied him with a worried expression. He had not moved a muscle throughout her ministrations. He was so still, in fact, that, had it not been for the faint puffs of steam created by his breath, she would have feared the worst. Oh, why won't you wake up? she asked in a small voice, overly loud in the dense silence. She may have managed to stop the bleeding, but she knew if he remained in the snow for much longer, he would succumb to frostbite, or worse. The cold had already seeped through her own clothing, and her extremities had started to go numb. She stood up and began to stomp her feet and rub her hands together, while her anxious gaze swept up and down the road in the hope of seeing someone approach. However, she knew it was a vain hope. No sane person would be out in these conditions on Christmas Day. She let out a rather hysterical laugh, for, by that reasoning, Hugh and herself were evidently not sane. A gentle neigh interrupted these dismal thoughts, and she looked across at the horse whose presence she had forgotten. He appeared to be none the worse from his fright, and was standing a few feet away, watching her. Oh, dear God, no! Must it be you? she asked the creature. No response was forthcoming. With a loud groan that was half battle cry and half despair, she threw off her fur-lined cloak and, dropping down beside Hugh again, wrapped it tightly around him. Then, without giving herself time to consider the biting cold or her fears, she marched over to the horse. Now, look here, she told it, in what she hoped was a firm yet soothing voice. We may not know each other, but I can promise you I will not hurt you. And you, sir, must promise to give me the same courtesy. Do we understand one another? The horse twitched one ear and continued to regard her in a placid manner. I suppose I must take that for a yes. Continuing to talk nonsense to the animal, she led it to the bank of the road, where a prominent tree root had grown beyond the man-made boundary, and, clambering up onto it, attempted to place her foot in the stirrup. It was an awkward business, but mercifully the horse remained still, until she managed it at last and put herself up onto the saddle. She had never before ridden astride and discovered it was horribly uncomfortable. In addition to the strained sensation of having the saddle between her legs, she also had to contend with her skirts riding up and exposing her shins. 
but at least the cold numbed her fear as well as her body. Giving the horse a tap with her heels, they set off at an easy trot in the direction of the village. End of chapter 45